chapter 4. I have this feeling I'm forgetting something, but I, I, you know, that just comes with the territory nowadays, so. We already said Happy Mother's Day, right? Okay, got that down. Not giving a specific Mother's Day message, although there is a verse in here where Paul says that he's laboring in birth for the people, and that's the closest that we'll get. I know some churches give out roses to the moms, but here what we do is any of you moms are more than welcome to come up and pick one of these plastic leaves off these <laughs> phony plants. <laughs> and when they're all gone, I'll be happy. Well, I should say thank you to those of you who came out to the work day yesterday. We did get a lot done. It was a lot of fun and, and a great time of fellowship, and so thanks for participating in that. Here we are, Galatians chapter 4. The book of Galatians was written by Paul to these churches in the area of Galatia, up in, mostly in present-day Turkey. He had introduced the gospel to them, and they had become saved. They understood the good news. Hey, Jesus died for you. You don't have to do anything to save yourself. He wants to save you. Just trust him, and he'll do it all. He'll forgive your sins. And so this glorious truth, but along the way, religion kind of crept in, and some legalizers and Judaizers came in to pervert and corrupt the simplicity that was in the gospel. And Paul got very concerned about this, and so he wrote this book in order to call them back to the basic truth of the gospel, to protect them, if you will, from the destructive power of religion that adds to what Jesus has done and rips you off from the freedom that is in Christ. And so it's been, we've been spending months in this book, and he spent, up until this point, has been his basic doctrinal argument, and he approaches it in a lot of different ways. He's desperately trying to convince them that the way that they're heading is the wrong way, that they need to come back into a simple faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in Him for everything. Now, as we are in chapter 4, he shifts gears a bit now as we're going to begin with verse 12, and I think I'm about to <coughs> sneeze. Glad to get those demons out before I really start teaching. And... Uh, <laughs> You probably don't remember Ernest Angley, the old evangelist. He used to come out, foul spirit, and they would sneeze. And so, <laughs> okay. Anyway, <laughs> what Paul is doing here is he's kind of bringing the argument down to the most basic level possible. In chapters five and six. The argument's over, and in chapter 5 and 6, he's going to apply this and say, here's what this means in your life. Here's how this works. Here's what it means to walk in this spirit. But this morning and next week, we will see as he puts it down to the most basics, really finishes his argument in this section, and the end of the chapter, he just tells them now, here's what you need to do. Here's the step that you need to take. But in this passage that we see, we see Paul at his most persuasive. Now, Paul was a brilliant man who was capable of putting together incredible arguments that it would be tough to defend yourself against. He was sharp. He was well-educated. And he's done the best he could do at doing that, but now he brings the argument down to, to the true heart of persuasion. And that's what I've entitled this morning's message, The Heart of Persuasion. And I think it's important for us to see this in Paul because 
There's something here for us. Now you go, well, I don't know. I'm not into persuading anybody of anything. But the truth is, each of us has an opportunity to influence others, to say things in such a way that we might be able to keep others from making mistakes, maybe the mistakes that we've made, mistakes we see them doing. The reason that we are here, the reason God has left us on this earth, is that he wants each of us in some way to influence others. It may mean sharing the gospel with people who haven't heard. It may mean nurturing or working with young people and seeing them raised up to maturity. It may be that voice of encouragement to those who feel like life has passed them by and they don't have any more meaning. Whatever it is that God has called you to, though, if you can present what you have to say in the way that he does here, you'll see, wow, this is powerful stuff. This is basically the anatomy of how to be persuasive or how to be influential. And it's sort of surprising. It's kind of a funny way for Paul to wind up his presentation. And yet, I believe that in these verses, there's some real power and things that we would, well, we would do well to pay attention to. He had said in verse 11, as we saw last week, well, in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. In other words, man, you're buying into the whole ritualistic religious tradition. And he said, I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored for you in vain. I'm afraid it's all going to be wasted. And now he branches in verse 12 and really reaches the heart of the matter. And he begins by calling them brethren. Earlier in this book, he's called them terms of endearment like, you foolish Galatians, I think you're bewitched. But now he's saying, look, you're my brothers. I'm not blasting you as the apostle. I'm the shepherd and you're the sheep and you better get in line. He goes, you guys are my brothers. He's understanding that there needs to be a connection. And the truth is, anytime we expect to have an influence over anyone, persuade them of anything. It's, it's grounded in connection. And so he says, brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. What he's saying is, look, I am understanding where you're coming from, and I hope that you can understand where I am coming from. Can we find a common ground on which we can meet? And understand this, there will be no effective communication until we can find that common ground. It's why Paul said in another place, hey, I, to the Jews I became as a Jew, but to the people who, aren't, who are without law I became without law. I have become all things to all men that by all means I might win some. And before we load up our gun with people, it's so important that we connect with them, that we establish a common ground, that we are willing to get inside their head, to understand what makes them tick, to see what it is, why they think the way they do. And until we do that, then we haven't earned the right to tell them what's in our head and they aren't interested. You've heard the old expression, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And Paul exhibits this here in a powerful way. He goes, hey, I became like you, and I want you to become like me. I want us to be brothers and sisters. I want us to find that common ground. Now, if you don't take the effort to do this, for the most part, when you have a disagreement or a difference with someone, you basically, if you say, okay, why do they believe things differently than you do? The simple answer, they're idiots. 
They're just stupid. They don't know what I know. If they knew what I know, this is true whether someone's in a different political party or persuasion than you, or whether you're a Christian and, and they're a, you know, a Muslim. It's, it's true of whether you know, they feel that this is the right decision to make and I think that this other decision is the right to make. Wherever there's a difference, I don't immediately understand how you could ever disagree with me. I don't get it. Because I know I'm right. Everything I'm feeling, it's so intuitive. I don't even need to argue for it. I just know I'm right. I have that feeling. The problem is you have the same feeling. And so if we are going to communicate, somehow I need to get inside your head and understand how you could feel the way you do and believe the way you do. And it would help if you would do that with me too. And when that happens, we can come to a great understanding on a lot of things. And so Paul lays it out this way, and he says, you haven't injured me at all. Now, he was a guy who had been there for them, helped them start the church, led them to to Christ, and he could have easily played the guilt card. He could have easily said, don't you realize what you're making me feel like? I've done all this suffering for you. No, he goes, no, I'm fine. See, once you're trying to communicate and then your feelings get mixed up in it and your injuries and your hurt, it always gets in the way. It's it's one of those things. There are some people who learn to communicate by manipulation and guilt. There are some people who just, you know, they make you feel beholden to them and therefore that becomes the central argument. I I made a comment in first service. I told myself I wouldn't, but let's face it. I, some of it, let's face it, moms figure out how to make people feel guilty. I bore you. You know how many times I wiped you and how many times I changed your diaper and what I did? You know, now it's time for you to pay me back the rest of your life kind of a thing. Well, doing that may cause someone to do what you want them to do, but it won't ultimately change their heart. It will cause them to do what you want them to do out of obligation. And Paul was saying, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not coming to you because you've hurt me. I'm coming to you and saying, look, this isn't, I'm not coming from hurt feelings. I'm not concerned about you hurting me. What I'm concerned about is you hurting yourselves. I'm really trying to protect you, is what he's saying. And now he takes a walk down memory lane. He goes back to the past, where their relationship started. And in verse 13, he said, You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you didn't despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Apparently... Paul ended up going to Galatia and starting those churches and preaching the gospel there because he had gotten so sick that he was unable to travel. There was some infirmity that kept him from having the freedom to go to more glamorous spots. And so as a result, there he was plopped in the middle of Turkey and feeling, here I am and so I'm going to start preaching. But he was suffering greatly. And not only that, he wasn't very pretty. He wasn't attractive. We know from matching Scripture with Scripture and reading extra-biblical literature as well that Paul had an ailment with his eyes. 
And it didn't just make his eyes not work very well, although it did that. It held him back visually, and so he used an amanuensis to do most of his writings, and then at times he would say, look at the big letters I'm writing. I'm really writing it. No one else is. But he not only had that bad vision, which holds you back enough, but they say that he had this condition with his eyes whereby there was gunk oozing out of his eyes all the time. Just gross, embarrassing. Paul was not the most attractive, slick, professional presentation of the gospel. So here he is, he's in pain in Galatia, he's in misery, he's trying to preach the gospel, and other people could look at him and go, look at that guy, you're listening to him? I've been told I have a good face for radio. And, (laughs) but imagine Paul, eyes oozing, and and he's going, remember what it was like? Although I was in pain, I was sharing the truth with you. And though I was ugly and unattractive, yet there was something in the message that touched you, and you accepted me. There was a connection that we had made in the past, and he's going to, in re-establishing you know, that connection, it's going to be the whole heart of his persuasion here, but he's going, what was that like? Remember that? Remember how you had every reason to just think, you know, there's a better-looking preacher down the street. But instead, there you were, my eyes oozing, me crying, me hurting, not able to say things as I would want to. Brilliant guy, but he had seen his better days. And yet he said, you guys accepted me. And as we read on, he says, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? What in the world did you see in me? How is it that you had such joy in the midst of our mutual suffering? Hey, I bear you witness, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. He said, I'm not knocking you guys, because I remember what it was like. Those early days, our first contact. And hey, I loved you enough to give you a message though it was painful for me to deliver. I could have just stayed in the hospital and relaxed, but instead I dragged myself out there so that you could have eternal life. But you know, you guys accepted me. You received me. You didn't throw judgment on me. Hey, you received me like it was like I was some kind of an angel or even like I was Jesus Christ himself. You, you, man, you saw my eyes oozing and you thought, I'd pluck out one of my own eyes if it could fix you. Basically what he's saying is, you know, back in the day, we had a connection. Back in the day, there was a, a mutual sharing. It was, it was simple and it was beautiful. He's appealing to that. Now, when we're communicating to other people, we can't communicate in a vacuum. We can't pop up and right away just go, you need to do this and this and this. Now, you can try it, but it's really true. Now you go, but what if I don't have a history with this person? I'm just out on the street and I want to share Jesus Christ with someone. How? I don't have the time to establish a relationship with them. Well, yeah, you do. Now, you don't have a history with them. Paul had a history with the Galatians, and that was helpful. And it will always help if you have earned the right to share with someone. If you've been there for them in their misery, they'll listen to what you have to say. But as we share with others, sometimes it helps just to give them a little bit of our history. 
to share what God has done for us and, and to allow them to share what their history has been like too. Now you go, no, I just want to get to the gospel. All four steps and a prayer, and I'm out of there. But no, I mean, you can do that. Sometimes somebody gets saved that way. But for the most part, it's when there's a connection. It's when we realize that, you know, you understand what I'm going through. You know what it's like to be me. And here, I get the feeling that even if I don't accept Jesus and you get a notch on your belt, I think you'd still care about me. I think you'd still want to help me. And you'd always be there for me if you could. Building that relationship is so important to communicating truth. If it's true in sharing it with non-believers, it's true in ministering to anyone. It has to be a heart connection. It can't just be a communication of thoughts or ideas or opinions. To do that, it's just, okay, you got your problems and I got mine. See you later. But if we really want to change others and be an agent of that change, it has to be through creating a connection. And sometimes that takes time. Sometimes it might mean that your neighbor, you're just being nice to them. And you're not saying anything about Jesus for a while. Start out with just baking them a pie or mowing their lawn for them or loaning them a tool or whatever. And they start to notice you care about me. And then they know, they see you going to church and they're kind of wondering why you're not showing up with some professionals to try to convince them to join your church. And yet in reality, no, you're just, you keep loving them. And there's this connection. And then as God opens the door to be able to share the ultimate truth with them, they're ready to hear it. But you know what? The same thing goes with your kids as you want to nurture them and raise them up in the way they should go. Or if you're ministering to other people's kids in youth or, or in children's ministry or whatever, or your grandchildren, whoever it is that you want to have an impact on, do you really want to affect others? Do you really want to live a life that is persuasive, a life that, that has the power to help others? Well, without the connection, hey, yeah, I know you can take a shortcut, but ultimately it doesn't work. We need to look back and create a history before we can ever move forward with the truth. And that's what Paul does here. And again, he says, hey, I'm not knocking you. Man, you guys would have done anything for me, and you know I would have done anything for you. We understand we love each other. We care. And he says now, verse 16, have I therefore, after all that, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? That's a huge problem. Because if someone tells me the truth and I really need it, now if you tell me the truth and I already agree with it, no problem. I like to hear that. But the most important truth for me to hear is the truth that I don't know, or is the truth that I believe a lie that goes along with it. So when I'm believing a lie, I need to hear the truth. But the problem is, when someone tells me the truth, that's a challenge to my very security and my being and who, what I believe and what I think I know. And so for anyone to come along and disagree with me is problematic because I draw a line in the sand and we choose sides. But what Paul is saying is, I don't want it to be like that. The truth is, well, the truth hurts sometimes but I'm not your enemy. We have enough of a relationship that I ought to be able to tell you the truth. 
Now, if you have a solid relationship with someone, that's the best shot at telling people truth that they don't want to hear. I never want to hear it from a stranger. But here's the problem. If it's true, and if I'm wrong, I am going to hear it from strangers. And so it's more important people who love me tell me first. And this is something that we need to do for each other. We need to tell the truth. But speaking the truth in love, knowing how can I set this up, how can I communicate this in a way, and this is really the heart of Paul's communication of everything that he has set up to this point. He's going, I know that you don't think this. I know you're being sucked in. I know you're being led away. But please, I, I love you. You're like my kids. Don't let me be seen as an enemy because I'm telling you the truth. And that's important for us to understand that tendency, to not immediately assume that someone is our enemy because they tell us something we don't want to hear. And at the same time, to understand, if I am going to help you, I am going to have to tell you things that hurt. I am. It goes with it. If I don't ever disagree with you, I'm never going to help you. But it's so important that that be done in love. It's so important that that be done in the context of relationship. It's so important that you earn the right to hurt someone. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So what do you got to do? You need to be a friend before you're going to nail them with a faithful wound. And that's what Paul is saying, and he's realizing it. And you know, for you to be a true friend to people, you're going to have to take risks. You're going to have to sometimes say things that hurt. If you avoid hurting others, then you're never going to help them. You're just going to let them keep going the way they're going. You know, they, oh, they're going the wrong way, but, you know, they seem like they're fine. So I'll just let them go the wrong way. Or do I say, excuse me, but you're reading the map wrong. You're heading in the wrong direction. I suggest that you turn around. If you don't, you'll be going further in the wrong direction. If you get to the point where you realize you are, then turn around. And we'll be here waiting for you. And we'll lead you where you need to go. That's the risk of being a friend. That's the risk of being faithful. And that's what it takes, ultimately, to persuade others, to influence others, to lead others. It's leading them first by establishing credibility in a relationship, proving that you have the right, that you care enough, and then having the guts to say the truth, even if it leads to some pain short-term. It's going to lead to healing down the road. Now he goes on and says, now he refers to these other people who are pulling them astray, these false apostles. In contrast to how he is communicating, he said, they, verse 17, zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. He goes, they're doing something differently. And he goes, to be honest with you, they seem more zealous than I do. They're putting on a great show, fireworks, and it's spectacular. And and if you look at me sitting here, this little old guy with my eyes running, and you look at them and their slick approach, yeah, it's great. But he said, here's the thing, they're not doing it for you. They're doing it for them. They're doing it so that you can be another part of their structure so that they can control more. So, and that's why religions are designed. Religions are constructed in order to control people. It's what L. Ron Hubbard said. He was a science fiction writer. 
He was speaking before other science fiction writers, and he said, the greatest scam in the world, if you really want to have it made, you should invent your own religion. And then a few years later, he did. Called it the Church of Scientology. Hubbard's dead today, but he was able to get control of of millions and millions of dollars of assets. He's been able to, to fool some of the most influential and impressive talent in Hollywood. And why did he do it? It wasn't to help them. He has these people, these celebrities who are tithing 90% of their income to that church. It's a scam. It's for him. It's so that he can be a big man and so that the people who inherited his mantle, that they can be impressive too. And hey, I'd be zealous too if I was getting paid what they're getting paid is kind of the idea here. But he's going, they're not thinking of you. They don't want to minister to you. They don't want to know you. They don't have a history with you. You don't see them suffering along with you. They're on their high horse promoting themselves, and they're using you to feed their ego. And he said, you know what they're doing? They're doing this in order to exclude you. What they're trying to do is to cut you off from everything that's valuable to you. They would cut you off from me, Paul would say. They would cut you off from your brothers and sisters in Christ. They would cut you off from your families. They would cut you off from the freedom that Jesus Christ died to give you. They want to exclude you. They want to rip you off. And you go, well, how would they do that? That's what religion does. That's what legalism always does. Anytime your faith becomes more than just trusting in Jesus Christ, And now it becomes about seasons and traditions and activities and you don't do this and you have to do that. As soon as it it becomes an indoctrination into training and valuing people based on what they can do, then what happens is the more religious you become, the more you see that you're better than other people. And now there's no common ground. Now I don't want to go out there and share my faith with people who don't know Jesus because they're kind of disgusting to me. I forgot my own history. I forgot what it was like to not know Jesus, to be lost, to not know where to go, to think the things that those people think. I forget all about that, and I'm becoming so religious that pretty soon only thing in my life is other religious people. And I judge them and me based on which of us follows the rules better. And that's what religion does. It excludes, it separates, it cuts off. It can't set you free. And so as Paul continues to share, that's, what, that's the alternative. That's what they're doing. They want you to be zealous for them. But, he said, it's good to be zealous. I'm not knocking, getting excited in a good thing always. And not only when I am present with you. He says, you know, I'm not there right now. I wish I was. wish I were. But since I'm not, don't act differently. You know, if I was there, you'd be excited to see me. But because I'm not right there, and these people are, you're getting zealous for them. And he goes on to say, my little children. He loves them. He, he sees them with this compassion. It's no more who has bewitched you, you foolish Galatians. It's, man, you're my babies. You're my kids. And I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I don't want me to be formed in you. I don't want you to become Pauline, you know, followers or disciples. 
I'm laboring like someone having a child because I want to see Jesus in you. I want you to become more like him. That's what I desire. That's the stress that's in my voice that you hear. And he says in verse 20, I'd like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. There are limits to writing and communication. Nowadays with email and instant messaging and everything, so often much of our communication happens in writing. And that's good. I love to write. I love to read. But sometimes you just need to get face-to-face with someone. And Paul is saying, you know, I'm doing the best I can, but boy, I'd love to look in the eye. Wish I could be there so that you could hear the tone of my voice. So often you can misunderstand what someone writes. And you can, you can hear something that's passion and, and you can understand it as being anger. And he's saying, I wish you could hear my tone. I wish while I'm saying these words you could see the tears that are flowing from my eyes as I love you so dearly and so deeply. He says, I'd like to be present to change my tone because I have doubts about you. I'm really afraid for you. I'm not worried about me. I'm afraid for you. Now, how could you resist something like this? If you were someone who had watched Paul, had seen what he's really like and, and been there with him and seen him pouring himself out and here as he bears his heart to you, that is powerful persuasion. It's powerful argumentation. It's powerful communication. That would influence you, I would think, greatly. But what is at the heart of Paul's communication? Because this is really the key for us. Yes, if we can do the pattern that Paul showed us here, it would be good. We could be a big help to those around us. But there's something more that Paul so cleverly interwove into this text. And it's, it's a reminder to us that Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What you really see here that's so powerful and that's so admirable is that you're seeing Jesus Christ in Paul. And let's just look through the passage again, and I know we're running late, but let's just go through it again and see how much of Jesus is in this, in this heart of communication, heart of persuasion. He starts out, brethren, and again, Jesus calls us his brothers. We've been reading passages about us being adopted into, into his family. And he goes, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. Kind of a strange statement from Paul, but we know what he meant. But I believe in reality he was alluding to what he would explain in greater detail to the Philippians when he talked about the incarnation, Christmas when God himself became a man. As he, as he said, he emptied himself and, and took upon himself the form of a servant. John said it in 1 John by saying, and the Word, the Word that was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The Word. And then he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you know how amazing it is that the God of the universe became a man? And do you understand why he did? Why the Word became flesh? He did that so that we could become like him. 
so that we could take on his likeness, he took on ours to suffer and to die, to humble himself as a person. And so as a result of him, you know, there was that old pop song, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us? He was. He is. That's the incarnation. God did become one of us. And as we see here, well, we were talking last week about being the Son of God. And in, in 1 John, it says, Beloved, now are we the children of God. It hasn't yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone that has this hope in Him purifies Himself, even as He is pure. He became one of us so that we could become like Him. Talk about a connection. Talk about common ground. Talk about understanding. He was tempted in everything as we are. He experienced our doubts and our fears. He experienced our pain and temptation. He became one of us. Paul was only describing for the Galatians what Jesus showed us how to do. As we read on, going through this passage some more, he says, you haven't injured me at all. Are you kidding? Jesus, could he say that? He had nails driven through him. He was deserted by everyone. He was killed. You have not injured me at all. Oh, he was injured. But Jesus made it clear. There are people who would argue, who is it that put Jesus on the cross? Hey, some people would say it was the Jewish leaders. You could see the argument behind that. Some people would say it was the Roman soldiers. That makes a lot of sense too. Some people would say, more to the point, it was us. And I understand that and agree with that to a degree. But you know what Jesus would say? He didn't say, you did this to me. He said, nobody takes my life. I give it. And so when Jesus came back from the dead, and he had the wounds, the scars, as soon as he saw the disciples, he didn't say, look what you did to me. Look at how you've hurt me. Boy, you owe me big time. But instead, what he said is, go ahead and touch me. There's holes in my hand. There's holes in my side. Oh, we don't want to touch it. It might still be kind of tender. It's not tender. Jesus never appeals to trying to make us feel guilty in order to obey him. I hate it whenever I hear people implying that. Sometimes you'll hear a little blurb on the radio or something that kind of goes something like this. Jesus hung on the cross for you. Can't you just open your Bible for him? Or something like that. Jesus never does that. He doesn't say, look at how you've hurt me. Now here, do me a favor. To do that might motivate us short term. But ultimately, that's not what changes a heart. And so he says, you know what? I'm not hurt. I'm not an open wound. Sometimes we see Jesus as somebody who's just falling apart all the time. Every time he's so shocked at the things that we say and do. But he would say, no, you haven't hurt me. Don't worry about me. I'm worried about you hurting yourselves. Don't you worry about hurting me. The idea isn't to change people's behavior. The idea is to see hearts change. Now, some of you dog lovers who train your dogs, some of you probably have taught your dog to pray. I've seen people that go over to their house and they go, okay, watch this. Okay, Fido, pray. Mm -hmm. Praise Jesus. Mm. 
I hate to shatter your expectations, but your dog's not praying. Your dog's not praising Jesus. They're just trying to get a dog biscuit. <laughs> but God doesn't motivate us that way. And so Jesus would say, look, I don't want you to do anything out of sympathy for me. I'm not manipulating you with my pain. The truth is, it's finished. It's over. I'm not feeling pain anymore. I, I'm coming to save you. I want to bring you to where I am. As we read on, he, he says, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. Obviously. Jesus went through that pain so that he could give us the good news, so that he could preach the gospel to us. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. Interesting choice of words. You remember in that incredible prophecy in Isaiah 53, probably my favorite chapter in the Bible. If I've said other chapters were my favorites, I was lying. It's Isaiah 53. As it tells the story of Jesus and talks about his humble beginning and the, the unattractiveness, the fact that he wasn't made for prime time. He wasn't a good TV star. It said, who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He'd grow up before him like a tender plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or comeliness when we see him. There's no beauty that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected of men. The same words here. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And it goes on to say, he bore our sins, carried our sorrows. And though we've gone astray, he's taken his sin, our sin, upon him and made it his own. And so... The logical thing is to look at him and despise and reject him. John said in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, he made that statement that showing that Jesus had come and he said, he came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Looking at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Just a root out of the dry ground, no form or comeliness. Jesus didn't come in a way that would make him popular. He came in a way that would drive most people away, just like Paul had. And yet, despised and rejected, not by everyone, by plenty of people. And if you want to be cool, it may not be the way you want to go. But again, as he says, my trial in the flesh, you didn't despise or reject, but you received me. Again, John 1, as many as received him, to them gave he the power. This is Jesus talking. As a messenger or angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. And so he says, hey, what was the blessing? What was the big deal when you accepted me? Man, I remember the time when you saw my suffering and you wished you could take it on myself. Hey, I'd pluck out an eye for you. That devotion that we felt for the Lord when we first met him. And now the question is, if Jesus is telling you something that means you might need to make some changes, is he going to be your enemy? Is, is he one who, who came to become one of you, who stretched out his arms and died for you? Don't you realize what he's telling you is something good? Now, if you read the Bible and it doesn't ever make you uncomfortable, you're reading it wrong. 
It should make you uncomfortable at times. As we share together in these times on Sundays and Wednesday nights, hey, there should be times when you're a little bit irritated, when you're kind of wondering, because God came to turn our life upside down, and when Jesus speaks the truth to us, it hurts sometimes. But when we understand who it's coming from, we realize this must be a good hurt. This is the kind of hurt that you feel after a good workout. Or, if you choose the metaphor, after you eat too much. And it's hurting, but it's a good kind of hurt. (laughs) Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Now, he says, the alternatives... They're people that just want to rip you off, that to, want to exclude you. They want you to be loyal to them. They want you to be their disciples. Jesus may not be as flashy or impressive. Calls us to a simple faith. But he said, I know there are people out there who are trying something more, but what they will do is they'll rob you of your fellowship. They'll rob you of your ability to connect with people who need to know Jesus. They'll rob you of the freedom that you have in Christ. They'll take your faith and substitute for it a fancy religion. He goes, I don't want to do that. I'm I'm laboring in birth, my little children, until Christ is formed in you. And again, he said, it's good to be zealous, but not just when I'm present with you. Jesus goes, I know, I, I went away. I said that if I go away, I'll come again and receive you to myself. But I understand it's difficult to have a relationship with someone who is at a distance, in a sense. But he says, man, I'm going to be present with you. And then you'll hear the tone of my voice. Then we will connect in a way that we can't now. In the meantime, I'm worried about you. I have doubts. Your ultimate outcome, I'm really wondering. What are you going to do? Are you going to live in the freedom that I paid for on the cross? Are you going to enjoy the reality of grace? Are you going to share that with others? Or are you going to live enslaved? Are you going to just become a dog praying or praising God, going through the motions, having no thought of God at all in your heart? Are you going to be a person who, by slamming people with the gospel, supposedly, what you're doing is driving people away from a, from a God who loves them. It's always sad to me when I'm around people who have the idea somehow that they have to act in a special way because they're with me. I was with some family members yesterday, and, and one of them wanted, we were sitting waiting to get into a restaurant, and some of the people weren't there yet, and she wanted to have a beer, and I could see she was all nervous, and I went ahead and just didn't say anything, and then she goes and orders the beer, and then she came and said, Dave, is it okay? Do you feel? I just felt so hurt that somehow she would think, here, I want her to know how much God loves her, and she would think a big deal to me is a, is a glass of beer. And, and Jesus would say to all of us, don't communicate to people in such a way that they miss the point of the grace of God. Don't you dare let them think that I'm a religion. I'm not. I'm not trying to change their behavior. I want to save their soul. I want to work on their heart. If we can't learn to communicate that way, we'll just drive people away. But this presentation by Paul, that to me is the heart of powerful persuasion and influence and leadership, it's ultimately just Jesus. And we will be able to communicate 
in the way that Jesus communicated when his heart is merged with ours. When we love him so much and we understand how much he loves us, that what comes out of us isn't religion, but it's heart. It's reality. It's grace. It's good news. And that's the whole deal. That's the heart of seeing change happen. Oh, you can change people in a lot of other ways, but all you'll do is make them religious. All you'll do is sucker them into following you. It's all about Jesus. That's the heart of change. And when we have his heart, powerful things can happen. Looking back, it's how every one of us came to meet him. Somehow that message came through, always through an imperfect vessel, but the message came through. Good news, man. It's grace. Somewhere along the line, many of us started to try to control we started to, to, to give up that simplicity and we decided that what we need to do is indoctrinate. No. It's, it's a horrible thing to do, to water down the truth. If our heart shows his heart, if we reflect Jesus as Paul did, I believe that we'll save people from things that will exclude them, ultimately things that might exclude them from heaven, from eternal life. But it's easy. We just need to quit muddying the waters with us. We need to allow Jesus to grow out of us, to grow within us, to shine forth from us. Let's pray. Lord, you did it all. And every chance we get, we complicate it. And we're sorry. Lord, we, within our hearts, we have good intentions. When we see our children going astray, we see our friends making mistakes, we see our family members acting in self-destructive ways, we see a world that seems to be going crazy, and God, we have so much zeal, we just want to do something. God, help us to trust your gospel and your ways and your heart to do the job. And Lord, as you show more of you in us, we will expect great things to happen. We'll expect that we'll be able to say the truth in a way that though it hurts, it's accepted. Because it's your simple and unadorned truth and we obviously have nothing to gain from it. So God, help us. Lord, if there are people here who don't know you, help them to hear the simple truth today. And to know that it's all about the fact that Jesus paid it all. He's covered it. In his grace, he wants to receive us into his family. And all we have to do is let him. God, do that transforming work in hearts of people who need it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.